This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Rams. I'm an editor-in-large and cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Look, there's a lot of people that we have on the show, and frankly, you you know. Uh, but then there are also people that we have on the show that you need to know. And our guest today is one of those people. She's founder and CEO and head hopper at Yellow Rabbit PR and Marketing. She is a decorated journalist. She's an editor. She's a columnist. She has 20 years of PR, journalism, marketing, and branding mastery. I like that word, mastery. That sounds important. Uh, Pamela Barry Johnson is a fantastic storyteller and incredible story to tell as well. Uh, for those of you who may not know this story, and, and I was made aware of it when I lived in San Diego and saw it on the news, little did I know that I'd end up working with her and becoming friends with her. But on April 12th, 1996, uh, she was a, a reporter for the Clarion Ledger newspaper at the time. And there was a white supremacist holdup in the Poe folks in South Jackson. And he had an AK-47. He looked through the scope and he saw somebody that he didn't thought he didn't like. And he pulled the trigger and it changed her life, I guess, forever in some sense. Um, she was very lucky to survive that gunshot. It was like nearly a mile away. But anyway, little did I know that within a few months that I would move to Jackson and I would get to know her. And um, truly, our guest today is somebody that I probably respect as much as anybody I know next to Jermaine. I'm just going to say that just because Jermaine's in the building. But Jermaine worked with her, too. So she knows her also. Um, very, very glad to have on the show today Pamela Barry Johnson. Pam. Man, it has been like a hot minute since we've talked. It is so good to be able to talk to you. And it's so good to be able to talk to you. So if I said anything so far that's made you mad? Oh, my goodness. Only that... Um, that it's been that, that long since then we worked together? It's been that long, you know? You, <laughs> people have no idea of the shenanigans that um, you and I share together in the newsroom. Um, but you're one of my favorite people in the world. Well, that's a great way to start a show, and we'll keep you on for the whole hour this way. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. No, I got to tell you, and, and I'll tell you um, why that moment really helped me. Number one, uh, you and I probably on paper don't have a whole lot in common, um, but we did both have a really wicked-looking scar uh, at that point. I guess it was this – because I had my melanoma surgery in 2001, and I was freaking out about it pretty bad. And you showed me your scar, which is up up on your back, which now, by the way, sports one of the coolest tattoos I've ever seen in my life around it. Um, but you made me very comfortable with my my cancer scar, and 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 for that, you know, like I said, twenty years later, um, I'm still grateful for you for that that little bit of peace that you gave me. Thank you. You're welcome. I um I never knew that that meant that much to you. I certainly um, remember well, going to tell you. About <laughs> Oh my God! You should have told me. I could have, you know, used it for free lunches and things like that. Free lunches? Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll buy yes. your lunch next time you're in town. But no, it was <laughs> like I said, it was it was a great moment. So I guess 
the first and most important question is your hot take on the Grammys last night. You know what? I have been catching up. Um, I did not watch the Grammys last night. Yeah. I, I just, I, I feel so disconnected from some of the things that are going on culturally right now. I am at that age where I'm curmudgeon Um I don't know all of the artists, and I'm just very loyal to my 80s music and my 90s music and even a lot of 70s music. So um, I've been reading the highlights this morning, very sh- shocked about um, the fact that Beyonce did not win album of the year. And, of course, I started listening to Harry Styles this morning. I, I was happy to know I knew some of his songs, but um, just catching up, playing catch up. Yeah, I think, um, I, you know, I, I feel like that you and I are singing from the same hymnal on this because um, <laughs> since Casey Kasem died, I've been woefully behind on my pop new music. <laughs> You know, and for the for the younger folks in the audience, Casey Kasem was the voice of Shaggy and, of course, did the American Top 40. So, yeah, very famous guy. But, yeah, I felt the same way. Yeah, Beyonce definitely um, was good. I was I mean, Bonnie Raitt, I was like, well, I know who she is, so I'm good there. So but that's good. Okay, well, we got the hot take out of it. I I think probably um, number one, like I said, I. I've been watching you via Facebook, and of course, you know, that's always the truth, what everybody posts on Facebook. But uh, I've been very impressed at your resilience and your transition and everything that you've made over the years and so forth a little bit. But I think probably a good place to start is, you know, the who's your mama, where'd you grow up, that sort of thing. Um, Tell us a little bit about your early years. Wow. Well, who's your mama and where'd you grow up? It's definitely in Mississippi. People use that to determine um, who you are, your relevance. I am very much a, um, a Mississippi daughter all the way through and through. I'm um, my family. I grew up in Jackson, so um, definitely Jackson. But my roots run all the way to Mississippi Delta in Yazoo County. Both my parents are from Yazoo County. My mom is from Benton, Mississippi, and my dad was from Bentonia, Mississippi. Oh wow! And exactly. And I spent um, every summer until I was um, in my um, early teens. And one of those places alternating. So uh, my upbringing was as much rural Mississippi as it was Jackson, like very equal. I went to church in Bentonia. So that's who I am. I'm just this amalgamation of the city girl, but very much with deep country roots. Yeah, I think about how, you know, the spending the time in the summer with my grandparents up in Tennessee, you know, and I was growing up in Atlanta, which is, of course, obviously a lot different there, but it meant a lot to me. And, and how do you think that that changed you? And how does you think that that helps you now when you get to be our age, although you look much younger than I do? Um, how how do you think that that helps you on a daily basis? Just kind of understand the state a little bit better. You know, I um, people are always surprised when, they, when I get a, a really in-depth conversation with them about their upbringing. Um, because of the experiences that I had. Um, you would think it was in the 70s, at least in the, the Benton part. My um, maternal grandmother, um, she um, lived in, in abject poverty. And I don't say that, um, and I don't say that lightly. Right. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a, it was very poor condition. She lived in a tin roof, tin roof house. She lived... Um, on land that she leased in the middle of a soybean field. Um, she grew her own vegetables, but she didn't have indoor plumbing. We didn't have um, electricity. We didn't have running water in the house. Um, so we, I used an outhouse. Um, I pumped water from a well. Um, I didn't get to go and live a different existence than my grandmother and my aunts and uncles who were still there. So 
I I experienced what people think of when they think of Mississippi, the stereotypical part. It was very much a reality at that time. And I think that um, that experience has ingrained me um, to be so resilient because um, there is no bottom for me. I've experienced, when you experience that, everything is up. Wow. Wow. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're a storyteller. I mean, you always have been. And you, you're very good at, you know, obviously when you were a journalist and now that when you're doing PR work a little bit. Is that what kind of helped push you into being able to tell those kind of stories to be able to do that? Or what, what drove you to decide one day, you know, I think newspaper seems like a really long-term, very secure place to go work. Well, with that type of poverty, um, my parents, and this is not a unique story for a lot of people that come from rural um, beginnings. It's not everybody's story, but um, my mom didn't finish high school. Um, she was the oldest girl out of 11 children, wow. my grandmother. Exactly. So she had to do a lot of helping out. She quit school early. She had to help out with the other siblings. She had to help pick cotton. She had to help do all the things she do for survival mode. My dad, um, likewise, he went all the way to high school, but he didn't finish as well. But when they had children and they moved to Jackson and my dad got a job at a plant, my mom got a job in food services, um, they were adamant about ensuring that um, even if they couldn't read it, they would make sure that we got an opportunity. My sister and I got an opportunity to get the books. Every book salesman from a, a mile around would come around, and they would buy these books, these book sets, Puss in the Boots and all these different things, Sleeping Beauty, the hardback, really fancy bound books and publications. So I was immersed in literacy really early. I was a really smart little kid, and um, I also had aunts who would read to me, and they would do the voices. Oh. You know, they would, exactly. They made it exciting. So um, I was exposed to um, reading and the love of reading at an early age, and it just stuck with me. My, my, my dad, um, he would subscribe to the newspaper, and, you know, you're little, you read the comics first. Well, of course. <laughs> but eventually... That that love also turned around to me reading the newspaper articles, and I was a good writer. I was a storyteller, and it just stuck with me and got under me. I didn't see people that looked like me, but I knew I wanted to be um, a part of that newspaper. So, when did you, um, when you said, "Okay, I want to do that," I mean, did you say, "Okay, then I need to go to this college and I need to study that"? Was that how the progression went? Did you go study journalism, or how? how I mean, I should know this, but I'm just I'm just curious. No, no, it's a good question. I did not have um, a, a guideway, a, a pathway, if you will. I didn't understand exactly where, how I was going to do it. I did go to a magnet high school. At that time, it was called Bailey Magnet. It was Jackson Alternative, different names and everything. So I was yeah. exposed even then to a lot of um, unique people. So I understood that it was possible. I, I kind of like stumbled into it the right way. Like your path has kind of led you to it. But when I was in high school, believe it or not, I, I would I would drive to high school every day. I, I drove this um this Monte Carlo blue, and it could start without a key. But I would drive that Monte Carlo to to high school, and when I got out, I drive downtown and I drive around or near the Clarion Ledger Building. I learned where it was, and I would go there. I I literally wheeled myself there. Um, I was always reading English and writing in school, and I ended up winning a um a scholarship for college. Um, from an essay that I had written. So oh. when I, yeah, go ahead. No, what was the, what was the essay about? <laughs> it was about um, talking about 
um, the women that you admire and why you admire them. Well, who were the women that you admired? At that time, it was women who were in my community. It was um, my my teachers from my elementary school. It was my Girl Scout leader. It was the women. um, I talked about the women that lived down the street that were pressing hair in their homes. And I talked about the people that are around me, my mom and different people. It was working class women. Um, I talked about them giving me wounds and helping me to soar um, and to see beyond even with the life that we that we had there, that I saw beyond that I saw the possibilities. So I talked about just the kind of support you can have in standing on others' shoulders. So you were able to tell their story, and of course in the process you got the means and the, um, the, the help to be able to go to college. Where did you end up going to college? I ended up going to, they're going to kill me for this, but I ended up going to Tougaloo College first. Um, and it was a beautiful campus. Um, it was it was wonderful, but it was so far from who I saw for myself, who I was, that I didn't I didn't do well there, so I didn't like it. Um, I felt invisible on the campus. I didn't have um, support systems are important. I didn't know anyone who had gone to college, and I um, I'm pretty sure I probably had elementary teachers and that type of thing, but immediate support I desperately needed that at that time. So I floundered a little bit. Um, ended up. Um, dropping out of Tougaloo, I just felt like a square peg in a round hole and um, eventually ended up at Jackson State University. Um, and there, in the middle of thousands of, of, of other students in this very urban, I felt at home because there's somebody you're going to find that's exactly like you. That took a lot and of courage, though. Yeah, it took a lot of courage to, to, to be able to make the change, but then to also not just totally quit altogether. I was so desperate to um, live up to the expectations that my parents had for me. Yeah. I think that they had poured a lot of hopes and dreams into myself and my sister. They wanted, and they talked about it, um, wanted us to go to college, wanted us to do well. My dad worked at, um, which was called Sperry Vickers at that time. Um, it's called Eaton now, a plant there, and he had worked there. Um, he retired from there before he passed. But he... Um, got to see people doing jobs that he thought were very important. So he pushed me really hard. Um, and he would always point out things about it and tell me stories. And everything. he wanted me to be an engineer. He did not want me to be a reporter. Let's be clear. <laughs> um, and for a while, that's something that I thought I wanted to, to do as well. But the writing and the reading and those skills just, it just, just pulled at me. Um, and that's what I eventually ended up majoring in at Jackson State English Journalism. So, You know, I mean, I, you're a parent now. I'm a parent. It's hard to believe that we, we actually figured out and had kids and all that stuff. But, um, and I think about my dad, and, and I'm thinking about your parents, and, and that belief that they had in you. And, and I think about my dad, you know, when I told him when I was eight I was going to be a cartoonist, and he said, you'll be the best one ever. You know, that lights a pilot light in you that makes you push forward. You know, because that was, for me, that was like a really weird thing to tell my dad, right? He could have said, oh, no, no, I want you to be like a football star or something. But, you know, that that belief that your parents had in you and those expectations probably got you through some incredibly tough times when you're trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to end up through the door at the Clarion Ledger and go right there? Marshall, it carried me through so much because um, when you can't do it for yourself, you do it for them. Yeah, I intimately understood that I very much was carrying my family with me when I was going through those experiences, and I was doing it for, I was literally the first one in my family to go to college. 
um, and to graduate from college, from a four-year college. So I, they were very hopeful with me. You know, I, I've always been known as a smart one who they would bring different things to and say, read this and tell me what this means or figure this out or, you know, just a, a nerdy kid who um, seemed to be plugged in and those expectations were there. And I didn't take it lightly. I still don't take it lightly. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just picturing you walking across the stage and how incredibly proud they must have been. When you know, you... Um, that's an understatement. You know, my pathway has not been a straight line. I always tell people who are struggling with um, the failures that they, they see themselves, the falling, the stumbling, the roadblocks, the stop signs, that's life. And people feel like, oh, I, I did this and I messed up and I can't get back up. Um, there are some people who are straight line people. They go from one point to the other and they don't waver. And there are some people who it's a curvy line. It's the up, the down, the swirls, the back and forth. But you still reach where you're trying to go. You just don't give up. And it's okay to be the curvy line person. I was a curvy line person. I didn't have the perfect experiences. But I got to where I was supposed to go, and I and it was a lot of people, those hands that were on my back, holding me up to get there. Well, if you turn around and look in the rearview mirror for a minute, you know, there's a reason why the rearview mirror is small on the windshield. But, I mean, you turn around and you look backwards, and you realize there was a lot of beauty in that journey. Exactly. You know, I didn't appreciate it then. I was young. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, did, I did understand that it was bigger than me, and it was about more than me. I did understand that part, and I still understand it. How did you make the transition from college to the Clarion Ledger? I mean, mine mine took a while, obviously. Um, there was a few <laughs> stops along the way, including being a custodian. But um, did you go directly from college to working at the newspaper? You know, believe it or not, um, by the time I, I found my calling and it was in journalism and just soaring and doing really well, um, I um, was, I think I was a junior at that time, there were a lot of um, um, black professionals that were reaching back to Jackson State from the Clarion Ledger and teaching classes and coming over to lecture and doing things like that. And um, one of those was Eric Stringfellow. Oh, Eric, um, yeah. Right. Eric was teaching um, some of the journalism classes, and he would come over and he would talk to us. And, you know, if you know, know Eric personally, he's um, deceased now, but he was very brusque and just straight to the point. He didn't pull any punches, and he would give, give our class assignments and tell us to come down to the city council and sit in or come and do these things. He was just challenging us to get out of the mold of just the textbook. And um, he encouraged me to um, come down in some free time. He's like, you're a really good writer. He noticed that I was a good writer. He said, you should come down to the Clarion Ledger and kind of meet some of the other reporters and just hang out. And I actually took him up on it. One rainy day when I had some free time, I went down and I showed up to the Clarion Ledger and um, came up to the newsroom. I was still the junior. But I, that was the, the day that I really connected in my mind that this is possible because I saw people that looked like me in the newsroom. Um, there was Jimmy Gates, who was one of my early mentors as well. There were just so many faces there, and they were encouraging. And I think that's the first time that um, it became a real in my head. So um, eventually, Eric told us about some opportunities where they are hiring for part-time positions at the paper. And there was a clerk's position where you literally are just typing in, like you're not writing stories, but they were um, offering a job in the community. Um, section of the paper the communities were where 
you have like birth announcements and honor rolls and, and they cover like little community events and that type of thing. Um, and they were looking for somebody just to type in the honor roll and the birth, the birth announcements. And I came down and I applied for the job and I got an interview. And I remember telling them at the time, I said, um, you know, I love this job. Matter of fact, I, I told them I would work for it for free. I said, um, the caveat is, I said, I want the opportunity to write stories. I said, I'm a writer, and I'll do a really good job, and I will cover the communities that you're not able to cover, which at that time was Northwest Jackson, my community. And um, at that time, um, I got a call back, and they told me that they had had um, applicants who were much more qualified. I was still a student, et cetera, but he said that um, what had surprised him was me being willing to take the job for free. And they offered me that clerk's position while I was still in school. And, wow. I, yeah, I took that job in the, in the community. This was um, Zimmerman. Yeah, I was, I was about Bill, to say Bill, Bill Zimmerman. Yeah, Bill Zimmerman was the person. Bill, Bill has his thick southern drawl and everything. And he said he was just blown away by my, um, my appeal, my pitch. So they hired me, and sure enough, um, that's where I learned to be accurate because if you type in somebody's, um, name wrong on the birth announcement and on a roll, you never hear the end. <laughs> That's right. You know, <laughs> That's it's right. like the only time. It's the only time that a lot of people, normal people, everyday people, get to be in the newspaper is birth, death, or something like the on a roll. So it was really important to get it right. So I learned how to be super accurate, and they also gave me the opportunity to go and write some stories. So I did things like at the Boys and Girls Club, and you know, different things like that, and. um I was just doing what I love and just having a ball and still a student um, in the middle of all this. And meanwhile, um, the people over on the newsroom side were taking notice of who is this kid over here just writing these featured stories for the community section. So um, I don't know what conversations happened behind the scenes, but they had a position that came open for a, um, a cops reporter. And they approached me and said, um, we'd like to see if you'd be interested in trying out for the position. And when you don't know enough to even be afraid or intimidated, you just go for it. <laughs> I, they, they told me that there was a dilapidated um, apartment complex where the people, the residents were really unhappy about over in West Jackson. And they said, we want you to go out. It's called the Royal Manor. They said, we want you to go out there and talk to these people and write a story about it. And that's what I did. I went out to the community. I went to the Royal Manor Apartments, I interviewed people, and I turned around and wrote that article, and they ran it in the Metro section as a lead story. And it's pretty cool when you see your name in print like that for the first time on a story. Oh, it just blew my mind. I was I was so happy. It was like the happiest day of my life. Um, the what? people in the community section were so proud of me. They printed it out, and they signed it. It was just, it was just a big deal. You're listening to Now You're Talking right here on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. And I'm with Pamela Barry Johnson. She's founder and CEO and head hopper at Yellow Rabbit PR and Marketing. Um, Pam, I, I got to say, the, just from the conversation on how you ended up getting your dream job, first of all, you visualized it. You would drive on the way to high school, past the building, and drive around it. And then when you went to college, you, you were able to link up with Eric Stringfellow, of course, who worked for the for the Clarion Ledger. Um, and, I, you know, it's I got to tell a quick Eric story because I worked with him for a long time back in the editorial department. And I saw him like 
when he came back from Texas and he said, yeah, he said, I, I just been diagnosed with cancer. I'm going to beat this. And then he was like gone within two months. It was just really sad. Um, yeah. Er, yeah, Eric was he was um, he was a, a good guy and a unique guy as well. But then, you know, you get a job where some people might have said, oh, I'm not going to go do that. That's not my dream. And you did it and you hustled and you did the work with a good attitude. And, you know, I remember when I had a good attitude. Man, I sure I'm glad I got past that, all that stuff. But <laughs> you, you get a job in the newsroom because you hustled and then you're you're doing what you love to do. You're, you're a reporter. And one day you get a phone call that says or you get told by your editor, you need to go cover. The, there's a shooter that's shooting at cars on the interstate. And that totally almost changed your life forever and probably did change your life forever. It most certainly did. Um, but, you know, the call that came over, I'd covered at that time when, you know, I was um, serving as a police reporter. I had, it had a record number of homicides that year in Jackson. And we were covering homicides just about every day. Yeah. So it was, it was what seemed, I hate to say this, but it seemed very routine. And the call that came over was that there was a person who had been shot. They were deceased. Um, and they called the coroner, et cetera. So it was not an active shooter call. Okay. It was, it was a call that this had happened and, and I was to go and cover. And it was in the middle of the day. It was like 3.30 or something. So I didn't go with the anticipation that someone was still shooting. I thought that the police were there, it cornered off, and it happened, but not that there was somebody still shooting. And you were nowhere near where the guy was. I mean, that's the thing. You were nearly a mile away. I was actually um, a little bit beyond a half a mile away. Okay, half a mile. And I, there, I was separated between the shooter and where he was and where I was. There was a highway literally rolling through like an overpass. Um, I was behind police barricades in a parking lot standing with like 50 other people in the parking lot of the Best Western Hotel that was there. So we weren't what was considered anywhere near close to the activity. We were a good little piece away from it. Wow. Wow. That, that, do you have any memory of what happened, or did you just wake up and you were in the hospital? Oh, I remember every single second. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, I was lucid the entire time. Um, just, just, just there the entire time. So I was, and I have to tell you what I was wearing because I'm a girl for one and it will make sense. Okay. But, um, that, that day I had on a, a silk cream silk shirt buttoned down and some slacks I had worn, which is, um, some girly shoes, which are not intended to wear out when you're covering homicide. But you're in your police reporter, you keep the extra pair of shoes in your trunk. Because you never know, you may you may be anywhere at a cow pasture. So I had changed um, shoes and put on some tennis shoes, and I had my police scanner in one hand and uh, my flip phone in the other hand and my notepad. And I had gotten into the scene, and I was just standing out there, and um, that just kind of solidified for me how horrified I can imagine that the people who had seen me after I was shot. Um, what I looked like to them because I did have on cream that day. Yeah, so you had a lot. I mean, the blood obviously, you know, soaked it pretty good. So you got shot. And I was trying to think. Was it was your upper left shoulder, if I remember correctly? Is that where he hit you, or right near your neck? Wasn't it? No, it was. It was actually in my neck. Okay, it, it was, was in your neck. Left. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the bullet. Um, I was standing out in the parking lot. So the 
the um, the shooter was shooting with an AK-47, yeah. the high-powered assault rifle, and the bullets were, were going upwards into the sky. He was spraying, and you spray and you wave your hand. Well, the bullets had traveled all the way over the overpass, and they were coming back down on descent and spiraling at the same time. So when I, before I was hit, I saw puffs of smoke in, you know, in a line coming towards me on the ground. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was like one puff, two puffs, and all of a sudden, and one of the bullets spiraled and entered into my neck. It missed the carotid about half an inch. It spiraled around um, the major organs and it exited out the middle of my back. I don't mean to, yeah, I don't mean to sound hokey or anything like this, but there was a lot, I mean, number one, if you, obviously there's been a lot of discussion about the damage that a bullet from a, an assault rifle can cause. You hit, right. an, it hit an area of you that should have killed you or it should have caused like permanent damage to you. And yet you survived. I mean, talk about the ultimate God moment. Marshall, if I had to been on the phone at the time, when it happened, because, you know, you have a flip phone. Well, the people don't remember a flip yeah, phone. Yeah, you look like you're calling in an airstrike. Phone. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I was leaned over. The phone was on my right side. And I was leaned over with my head tilted to the right, almost to my shoulder, talking to the other reporter who um, had trained me and, and was my partner in crime, if, if you will. And I was talking to him, describing what was going on. He was off and at home, standing up, cooking hamburger heifer or something, Jay Hughes. Yeah. And I was telling him, describing him, I said, you will not believe what is going on. Like, it's Armageddon in my mind. Because I'd never covered anything like it. And had I not been on the phone with him, that bullet would have hit me in my forehead. So literally, me being on the phone with Jay saved my life. Sorry, I've just, I've just, and, and like I said, I, I knew the details, but even just to hear you say it now, all these years later, um, Gosh, and I mean, and you know, and I've talked to some of the folks that were at the paper, and they were just completely mortified when it happened. And you know, obviously, um, it hits, and you know, luckily, I guess there was a pretty big law. I mean, there was probably ambulances and everything else. You were able to get help pretty quickly, weren't you? No, I wasn't. What the ambulance? No. Okay. No, this was a, this was an active shooter. He was literally rounds were coming down like okay. in a war zone. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm listening on the scanner. I can still hear the police traffic. But it took the ambulance um, about 30 minutes, roughly, before they can get to me because what? he was actively shooting. Okay, that's your second so miracle right there that you didn't bleed out. I did not bleed out. And let me tell you, I covered so many homicides. And this is, it's so morbid. I know people will hear this and think, oh, my goodness. But all these things had to come together in order to protect me at that moment because the one thing that I knew was, well, two things I knew. You stay calm and you don't run. You yeah. don't panic because you bleed out. So I stayed relatively calm. I didn't run. I didn't panic. I walked to get help. I was like I said, I was in the parking lot. So I walked over to the person that was closest to me and proceeded to tell her that I needed help. I had been shot. She threw her hands up in horror and just was like, oh, my goodness. Um, and so I said, I'm not going to stand here and die with her. So I turned around and I walked into the um, lobby of the hotel that I was in the parking lot of. And then I walked through the door and I'm covered in my blood in this cream shirt. And I still have a police scanner in one hand and the flip phone in the other. Um, and there's a woman that's coming from the opposite direction. 
and there's a the front desk. And she took one look at me, and before I could say a word, she started barking orders to people. You get me some towels. You do this. Where is the room? This, that, and the other. And she came over and immediately just took control of the situation. And she was a nurse staying at the hotel with a Baptist convention that she was attending. Okay. Miracle number so, three? Yeah. Exactly. So she led me into an adjacent, I guess it was a conference room or something. She had me to sit down. She was applying pressure to the entry room, which at that time, neither of us knew I had an exit wound. So she was trying to stop the bleeding, um, applying pressure. She's covering my blood. I'm covering my blood. She couldn't figure out where all the extra blood was coming from, and then she realized she has an exit wound. So she had me to lie down on the floor, and she's talking to me. She's taking my name. She's getting my next, you know, my contacts and having people to call. And in the middle of all this, I told her I didn't want her to be afraid. I told her I wasn't afraid that I was saved. I thanked her for helping me, and I told her that um, it's going to be okay. So here you were. Was, you'd just taken a bullet, <laughs> had gone through your neck, and you're calming down the people around you. That's that's pretty. Well, let me tell you. That sounds like something you would do. It it didn't sound like something I would do to myself until it was tested because yeah. I've been raised in I've been raised in the church. Um, most people, I can't say everybody, but most people in Mississippi have some connection to the church, religion, faith, and I had had a lot of church, probably more so than most people. But I had never known what I actually thought or believed until that moment. Yeah. You know, you don't know what you know until it's tested, and I realized that I do believe in this. And I and I and I do understand that if this is my moment and that I'm going to die, um, I'm not afraid. I understand where I'm going to go. I was only 25, so um, the fact that I didn't freak out, I would love to say, "Oh, it's just me. I'm so great." Um, but it, it's very much God's grace. It's very much um, something that was bigger than me. Well, obviously, yeah, I mean, you you know, you're here. I mean, that's the thing. There were so many. I mean, like you said, if you hadn't been on the phone, you know, but you were also randomly right in the, what the shot that he took. I mean, was he, mm-hmm. was he looking through the scope and seeing y'all and trying to hit y'all or was it just like him just spraying and it was a random shot? You know, I've always wondered that. I'd never gotten the answer to that. I don't know if he had a scope. I would like to think that he was just randomly spraying, you know, and having his spaz out moment where he just has decided that I'm just going to do this. I don't know. Yeah. To be honest with you, I don't know if, if I was targeted. Yeah. Um, and I've never given a lot of thought to it because whether it was intentional at that moment or not. You still not, got hit. Um, I still got hit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, if it was a bad aim or not, I just, you know, I still got hit. It's like when the 30 out 6 slug came through the roof at the paper and nearly hit one of the sports editors. And, and he just bounced up and hit the ceiling and that hole's still in the building. It's kind of interesting, but... But yeah, right, right. Yeah, no. So I mean, sometimes life comes at you randomly. But the fact is that that randomness worked in your favor by having that nurse. At that point, you know, she did the triage for you, were able to keep you at least um, from bleeding out, like you said. And then the ambulance showed up thirty minutes later. That that's still well. Uh, let me tell you, by the time the ambulance got there, Jay Hughes, the person I was on the phone with when it happened, had arrived. Wow. That's how long it took. He was able to get dressed, get through all of this and pull up there, and they're they're putting me into the back of the ambulance. And he rips the back of the doors open and just grabs my hand because I can imagine if looking through his eyes, he thought I was a goner. He saw me. I'm covered in my own blood. They have a mask on me, and I've been bleeding out for a while. And he's hearing that same thing. He had a scanner at home. He knew. Um, 
it just it was it was a very long drawn out experience. I knew you were going to be on the show. I talked to Debbie Skipper a little bit about it, and she just said, "I I can't." I, I, it's almost hard for me to talk about all these years later. She said it was one of the most horrifying days of my life. You know, I struggled with the emotional response of others after I came back. I, I understood it um, from a personal level that others were going through their own moment and praying for me and having moments with me. It just was so hard to imagine. Like, they really thought I was going to die. You know, it, but to see the emotion and the relief from all of them. It just yeah. overwhelmed me. Yeah, you realized at that point me. you were pretty loved. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, in, in a newsroom setting, people that don't know, we can fight like wild, you know, wolves. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're emotional and, you know, loud with each other, and we get the job done, but it's a lot of personalities in a newsroom setting. How long were you in the hospital, Pam? Um, I think I was there for about three days. Three days. Wow. Yeah. You know, like I said, um, I, you know, you, you got shot in early in 96. I got there in December. And I don't think, you know, I don't even remember when we became friends and when I got to know you a little bit. But and, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, when I had my cancer and, you know, I've got like a six inch scar on my back and, and it, you know, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. You really gave me a lot of peace on that. You're like, well, you know, show me your scar, I'll show you mine kind of thing, which kind of sounds weird, but that's fine. I, I think, I don't think HR would come after us on that one, but, um, but you know, you could have become really bitter about that, that situation, but you weren't, and you weren't then, you weren't now. And I think it, you know, and I look at the trajectory of your life and, you know, obviously we've got a little bit more time. I want to talk about what you're doing and we'll do that after the break. But, um, I really, uh, how much I admire you is just because of the fact that you, you got hit literally by a bullet in the neck by a racist, and you could hate everybody, but you never let that happen. You know, that has been the biggest thing for me moving beyond all of this and moving into adulthood, how I handled that fact and how I was going to handle my response. Um. I, I don't consider myself to be a pacifist. I'm not. I'm fiery sometimes. I've noticed. Um, yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, I, I have a um, reckless mouth if you make me mad. <laughs> um, I stand up for myself and I stand up for others. I'm, I'm a storyteller and I believe in justice and everything. Um, the tendency to be radicalized, racially radicalized, was strong. And I would be lying if I said that there were not um, some fallout from what happened there was for yeah. me personally um i struggled with it i actively struggled with it i prayed a lot um but i will tell you this um the things that needed to happen racially for me during those moments kept me from those places the person that was soaked in my blood and climbed into the ambulance with me that nurse was white the doctor that saved my life was white. Um, my best friend at that time was white. Jay Hughes, the, the other reporter, was white. I, I couldn't see them, see hate in them. It was a struggle. You know, it became very hard to not question all the things that I thought I knew. Um, but those things helped me, helped to give me balance. 
And at the end of the day, you, you, didn't, yeah, you didn't allow him to win. I did not. I did not. I was, I was immersed in love from people of all races. Um, everybody just loved on me. You mentioned Debbie, Debbie Skipper. She was my boss at the time. I loved Debbie as if she birthed me into this world. <laughs> um, I, I don't look at Debbie and see race just because she's one of the most amazing, loving people on this planet. Yeah, Debbie, Debbie. I mean, she. I agree with you 100%. She's one of the kindest people you'll ever meet. So, wow. Um, it, it, like I said, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't have moments where someone said something and I didn't look the yeah. second time, the third time, and think, did they say that because I'm black? Yeah. You know, are they treating me that way because I'm black? Um, it was a struggle for years. I felt... Um, like there was a veil that had been lifted, and it wasn't a good one. Yeah. But love over, love overcomes a lot. You're listening now. You're talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today, and I'm with Pamela Barry Johnson, founder and CEO and head hopper at Yellow Rabbit PR and Marketing. Pamela, you were talking about, you know, you were shot. You were one of the. It was one of the first mass shootings. I mean, there weren't many of them back then. Um, you end up becoming a victim, and um, you had every chance to be better, and we touched on that a little bit. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, your response really touched me. Um, but, you know, we live in a world now where it seems like the kind of shooting that you experience is happening now on a daily basis. And and, and I know there has to be some degree of, of PTSD. How are you able to get through it and cope when you see this story just going on over and over and over? You know, Early on, I couldn't escape it. Um, it was, there was almost an involuntary response that you have. You relive what you've gone through when you see others go through it. I, I felt connected to every time it happened. I felt connected. Yeah. Every single time. But time is healing if you allow it to be. Yeah. Um, not that I'm cold towards it now. I still do protect my space. I, I, I cannot feed into reading all the details about everything. Right. You know, I'm human, and I still feel connected, but I don't, I, I don't read it all. I don't follow it all. I just can't. You know, it's still, it's still very emotional. I was really worried about you when the Pearl shooting happened. I really was, because I remember that. I, you know. I was worried about me. I thought, you know, part of me, my brain, the protective part is like shrieking because I'm like, this world that we're living in is just going to hell in handbasket. You, you have that response that things are really falling apart here. And then you have something else to balance that out when you realize that we're going to be okay. You know, um, we still get those moments where it shifts back. And we have to be intentional about those moments, moments where it shifts back. Yeah, so it's an act of effort on your part. It really does define the beauty. And I think... You know, you made the transition from journalism into PR. And frankly, to be honest with you, you just went from being a storyteller to a storyteller. You're just telling a little bit different kind of stories now. Um, in a way, I think you having the courage, you, you move to a new town, um, you, you start the business, you get married, um, you, you, you know, you have great kids. I mean, literally, your, your life seems to be in a very, very good place now. But I think a lot of this is very intentional. You've, you've done a lot of the work. Um, to get to this point? 
Well, it sounds a lot better <laughs> coming from you than it was for me going through it. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, it's um, a lot easier when you compress it to about a 30-second you know, sentence. I, mean, I understand that. I know there were some tough moments in there, too. Yeah. And just just for clarity's sake, I did go through a divorce. Um, the uh, man that I was married to at that time who went through that experience with me, and then you see the new footage of him running slow-mo up this hill to get to me. Yeah. Uh, he's a great, great guy. We have beautiful children, but we're not married longer. I'm married to a, a different guy who's wonderful, who's an educator. Um, and life goes on, you know. You just, you have to find those those spaces. Um, I've had some ups and downs as far as everybody goes. Nothing abnormal, but just, you know, um, lost parents. Um, I know you always have talked about that and how hard that was. My dad had Alzheimer's. My mom died of cancer. Life just happens. Um, but I've had some great moments in that, too. I've worked with some amazing people, been given the opportunity to transition from one storyteller, like you said, to the other. And I love what I do. And I love how transformative um, being marketing and branding and PR is. I, I have a new business partner um, who's amazing. Um, we have a, a new business called Go Rabbit that we created, creative services, um, I just have been open to the good things, very open and intentional. Yeah, I mean, so, that's, that's great advice because, like I said, um, you know, just – and I was sitting there. I had to – I don't know. It seems like the world is kind of like kind of uh, right now. And I was just kind of sitting down doing that kind of the uh, Oprah gratitude journal thing, which sounds a little hokey, but it works when you sit down and you look at what's good in the world instead of beating yourself up over what's the bad and, you know, I, I always love when your Facebook posts pop up because you generally – there's enough wisdom now in what you're saying that, you know, when you pop out and say something on that. But I'm just proud of you, like, on the business side on that. And I know you're getting a chance to actually um, get to work with folks and help them tell their stories now too. You know, that has been the most surprising for me because I never wanted to be a business owner. And I think – if there was a joke to be had with God, the creator, that part would, for me would be the biggest thing because I literally wanted nothing more to, than to be a reporter. Um, my path has not been intentional beyond the newspaper. When I left, I left right after Hurricane Katrina. It was so much suffering. Um, it was just so much. And I had children at that time. The hours, um, all of it waited I mean, more than the love of being there did for the first time. And that's my transition. And I ended up taking a job at Jackson State in marketing in the public relations area and um, found that I could still do good, but it wasn't easy. Um, I think if you give yourself an opportunity to dream a new dream, and it sounds hokey, but you do have to let the old ones rest. And that part was scary. And, of course, I stayed um, in communications at the university for several years before transitioning to Georgia, moved to Georgia, and I took a job as um, executive director of marketing and communications at Fort Valley State University, my Wildcats. And love that, was doing um, what I love to do. And my wonderful husband wanted to come back to Mississippi. <laughs> you know, um, you don't just live your life. You live with people that you love. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. 
We uh, we got about 30 seconds left. Go ahead and throw out how folks can find out a little bit more about your company and so forth and your, your website just so they can learn more. Well, please visit um, me online. If you're curious and want to know what I'm doing now, you can visit me at yellowrabbitpr.com, or you can check out my um, new venture, Go Rabbit, G-E-A-U-X, rabbit.com, and um, hit me up on social media. I'm super social. Check me out on Facebook, and just let me know that you heard it and that if you have any questions, I'd love to answer. And I tell you what, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Marshall really is one of my favorite people in the world, people. Y'all just don't know. He's so so humble and lovable and just an all-around good guy. And uh, the check will be in the mail. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Well, I want to thank you for listening today. And I want to thank our, our guest, Pamela Barry Johnson, for joining us. And if you'd like to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast. I highly recommend that on your favorite podcast app or on our public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio with episode and podcast produced by the one and only incredible Jermaine Flood. Hey, stay tuned. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit is coming up next. And join us next Monday for Now You're Talking. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Y'all have an awesome week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 